right, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again. Tea History Podcast, part 13 this time. We're going to look at the setup for some of the historical drama in the world of tea during the 18th and 19th centuries. Although tea made its debut in The Hague in 1610, it wasn't until the early part of the 1700s that tea had taken Britain by storm. And by extension, this meant the American colonies as well. By the time of Queen Anne, 1702 to 1714, tea had permeated all the rigid strata of British society. And like it was in China, the passion for tea started with the royals and the rich first. Perhaps it began as a pretentious social function, but goodness overcame pretension and the pleasure of enjoying a cuppa quickly won over the hearts of whoever came in contact with it. By the 1720s, the demand began to rise steeply as awareness about tea set in amongst those who were neither rich nor royal. By 1730, two years before George Washington was born, a million pounds of tea a year was being imported into Britain. By 1760, this number had tripled. And by 1770, nine million pounds of tea was shipped. The population of England in 1770 was only about 6.4 million, so you do the math. Okay, I'll do it for you. 1.4 pounds of tea per person per year, including newborn babies. So you know it was probably closer to a couple pounds a year. (laughs) That's a lot of tea. To handle all this tea were a network of thousands and thousands of retailers and wholesalers who got into the biz. By the turn of the century... The average annual per capita consumption in Britain for tea was about 2.5 pounds per person. Tea had far and away become the most profitable business in which the East India Company engaged in. During this early period of tea's development, a chap named Richard Twining got into the business. You know their brand, Twinings. I called it Twinnings all the way into my 30s before I got wise. Anyway, Richard Twining was one of the earliest to notice that tea would make a very civilized alternative to England's normal breakfast beverages. This included gin, ales, and coffee, all safer and more healthful than London's own water supply that was back then too contaminated to drink. With tea, the water had to be boiled, so you knew it was safe. And it was the well-known brand, started by Richard Twining, that played a key role in the early development of the tea business in Britain. And it was Richard Twining and all his progeny, who, even up to this day with Stephen Twining, played such a key role during this great historic age of tea in Britain. The British East India Company, with the Dutch initially halting their efforts to deal in the spice trade, were permitted in 1690 to set up a trading operation in Calcutta. The Mughal Empire that had been around since 1526 was starting to show a lot of wear and tear as the 1600s came to a close. Revolts to Mughal rule were popping up all over India. The Battle of Plassey in 1757 put the British in the driver's seat as far as control of Bengal and the north went. They were able to start taxing businesses there and commenced turning the Bengal region into the future cash cow it would become for the company. For the rest of the 18th century and then into the 19th, India, little by little, fell under the control of the East India Company. By 1772, Calcutta would be the capital of British India. 
If you're not familiar with the geography of India, this northern part of India, Bengal, was where Assam, Darjeeling, and Patna are located. Assam and Darjeeling, as you all know, was and remains famous for their tea. Patna was where the poppy fields were that would produce the opium that would be dumped in China with historic consequences. From CHP past episodes, you remember that the tea-loving Qianlong Emperor had banned opium in 1729, and ever since then it had been smuggled into China where dealers distributed it to the increasingly addicted populace. Over in the American colonies, tea was no less popular than in the home country. Thanks to the Dutch, the colonists had known about tea since the days when Manhattan Island was still called New Amsterdam. Tea with milk and sugar came later to the future American colonies via France. The Dutch drank green tea straight up, occasionally with some additive for flavoring. The Quakers called tea, quote, the cups that cheer, but not inebriate. Someone else said, quote, Tea is better than wine, for it leadeth not to intoxication. Neither does it cause a man to say foolish things and repent thereof in his sober moments. It is better than water, for it does not carry disease. Neither does it act like poison, as water does when it contains foul and rotten matter. End quote. Hey, baby, I'm sold. The American colonists really liked their Hyson and Bohe tea. They were drinking it in Boston as early as 1670, but it wasn't for general sale there until 1690. By the 1750s, it was not only the national drink of England, but in the colonies as well. This was partly thanks to sugar that was being grown down in the West Indies. Sugar and tea were linked in the overall trading picture. Sugar and tea went hand-in-hand in in England. Sugar and the slave trade were the front end of what sugar was to tea. The Portuguese kicked off the sugar trade and began exporting it from Brazil in the 16th century. In the 17th century, the British began building plantations in Barbados and other islands of the Lesser Antilles. In the 18th century, the Greater Antilles, especially Jamaica and Hispaniola, also started shipping sugar. Hispaniola today is the island comprising of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. In the 19th century, uh, after slavery uh, had been abolished in Cuba, 1886, the plantation owners turned to Chinese immigrants to work the sugarcane fields of Cuba. Anyone familiar with American history studied the Atlantic triangular slave trade of the late 16th to early 19th centuries. The British would trade their wares, copper, textiles, hardware, guns, and munitions to Africa. From these West African traders, they got slaves. The slaves would be packed up like sardines and shipped off to the New World to work the Caribbean sugar plantations in the West Indies or the tobacco plantations in the American colonies. Of the 88% of the slaves who survived the brutal voyage across the Atlantic, they were traded for sugar, molasses, rum, and tobacco. And these commodities were shipped to Britain, thus completing a kind of trading triangle. Molasses, for those not sure what it is, is what the British call treacle. It's a byproduct of uh, sugar refining. Now, this wasn't always the case all the time. Plenty of trade went on between the colonies and Britain directly. 
and it wasn't always strictly limited to sugar and tea. I don't want to get sidetracked or anything into discussing the slave trade, but I want to point out that once the Western nations got involved, well, the tea trade sort of lost its innocence. Although the tea business got mixed in with the slave trade only in an indirect way, it was still part of the same daisy chain. The Honorable East India Company by the mid-1700s had sort of fallen on hard times. They'd bitten off more than they could chew in India, and managing such an operation became quite a drain on the company. Managing India was the EIC's headache, not the British government's. Aside from that, there was a bit of an economic depression going on in Europe, and this also affected the EIC's health. The East India Company was way too big to fail, so when they found themselves in desperate straits, there was no one else they could turn to except the British government. Since the EIC received their monopoly in the tea trade in 1698, they had used an army of lobbyists in London to make sure they kept Parliament at heel. They didn't want any politicians getting involved and telling them what to do with their business, so they were masterful in using their money and power to influence the laws and regulations. But when they hit a rough patch in the mid-18th century, they had to go to Parliament to seek relief, and finally the government was able to use this change in the dynamic to get the upper hand in the relationship. And then from this point on, British India fell under British political control rather than solely under EIC control. Big business and special interest groups today still use the same tactics of the EIC lobbyists to try and push the government around and to influence the laws and regulations, just like the EIC used to do. By the time you piled on all the taxes and fees, legal British tea was quite expensive compared to the smuggled product shipped from the Netherlands. It was very illegal for the Dutch to ship tea to Britain or the colonies, but that didn't stop them. They purchased tea in China for their own market and did a brisk smuggling business in both England and her colonies. No taxes. Naturally, the colonists chose to purchase from Dutch smugglers rather than pay the highly taxed but higher quality British EIC tea. This put a huge dent in Britain's tea business. Thanks to the Dutch, in 1769, tea exports to the colonies from England was down by 50%. Parliament's first attempt to deal with this situation was the Indemnity Act of 1767. This gave the EIC a nice 25% refund on product reshipped to the colonies. This lasted till 1772. But the British government in order to make up for the 25% loss in revenue, passed the Townsend Acts of 1767. Not only would this offset the revenue from the tax breaks given to the EIC, it would also directly tax the colonists on a number of items. And one of these items was tea. The American colonists were damned if they were going to be turned into anyone's cash cow. The prevailing law said British subjects couldn't be taxed without the consent of their elected representatives. It wasn't the small threepence per pound tax that raised the hackles of the colonists. It was simply the whole idea of the tax altogether. The whole principle began to be fiercely argued. 
The colonists, being in the colonies and all, didn't have elected representatives in Parliament or anywhere. So this is where the whole idea of taxation without representation came about. The colonists and the British government were already sparring over this issue, and both sides were determined not to back down. So when word got round about the Townsend Acts, this just fanned the flames of discontent. Imported British tea became the symbol of this unfair taxation. Political and community leaders in the colonies began passing the word to boycott tea shipped from Britain. Untaxed Dutch tea, however, was still getting into the market and satisfying the mammoth demand of the American colonists. After sufficient grumbling, Britain repealed the Townsend Acts in 1770, but left the duty of three pence per pound on tea. And this was kept in place not only to show the colonists who was still the boss, but also to cover the nut of the salaries of British colonial officials there. But taxes remained in place in Britain, sufficient enough to cause a hit to the market. Tea, once again, became a luxury that was a little out of reach of the lower classes. Demand went down and stockpiles went up. The EIC was again in hot water. They looked to the American colonies and their insatiable demand for tea is the answer to all the surplus tea they had on their hands. The key would be to price the tea low enough to undercut the Dutch, who had been undercutting Britain all these years. And the answer to this dilemma was known as the Tea Act of May 10th, 1773. This gave the EIC the right to bypass British middlemen in London and for the first time ship tea direct to the colonies. But the three pence per pound tax that came from the Townsend Act remained in force. Some in Britain feared, well, this was going to piss off the tea drinkers in the colonies, but nobody listened to them. The EIC began shipping tea direct to the colonies. They didn't have to pay the tax. They set prices to undercut Dutch smugglers, and many American merchants who played by the rules paid the tax for ongoing shipments of tea from Britain. It was sort of a shell game to figure out exactly how the taxes ended up getting paid, but the truth remained that American colonial merchants, and by that token, all imbibers of tea in the colonies, still got stuck paying that three pence per pound duty. The whole idea of taxation without representation was still being grumbled about. Towards the fourth quarter of 1773, a showdown was mounting over this tax. Even though the final price of the tea was actually beneficial to the colonists, the whole idea about being diddled by Parliament over taxes was really causing unrest. You see, all along, when I was saying the colonists were all teed off about the idea of taxes being levied without having any say in the matter, the loudest voices by far, as far as this was concerned, were coming from the direction of Boston, in the Massachusetts colony, and their chief spokesman was Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty. The loudest voice may have been coming from the direction of Boston, but in Philly, they also weren't keeping their feelings to themselves. And this was about the time when words like united we stand and divided we fall were being bandied about. A resolution was passed there at the Pennsylvania State House on October 18, 1773, that said, quote, The tea tax was an unwarrantable duty imposed on the colonists without their consent. 
that the EIC was attempting to enforce the tax and that any person who should attempt to unload or vend the tea would be an enemy to the country. End quote. <laughs> wow, quite strong words. Well, in the lead up to the American Revolution, it was Sam Adams and the group he led in Massachusetts that caused the spark that lit the fuse that would directly lead to the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. America's Guoqing. My fellow Americanskis who studied colonial history all know about the Boston Tea Party of December 16th, 1773. This was the ultimate response to the Tea Act that had been enacted seven months before in May. And the showdown began in September 1773 when the first of seven East India Company ships set sail for the four ports that were designated by the EIC to act as official agents to deal in EICT. And this was Boston, New York, Charleston, and Philadelphia. These four places supplied the 13 colonies with legal British tea. About 272,000 kilos of tea was laden on board, packed in 2,000 chests. A standard tea chest was about 40 by 40 by 62 centimeters, sometimes a little bigger. As I mentioned, the EIC warehouses were swollen with tea, and they were anxious to finally turn this inventory into cash. Besides the whole idea of this tax, another sore spot with the colonial tea merchants was that the EIC had this monopoly on tea trade going back to 1698. These American colonial tea merchants, man, with so many links there in the supply chain, each taking a hefty profit, and all of this ended up getting palmed off on the Yanks. By the time it reached the homes of the people, the tea leaves had passed through almost a dozen hands, beginning with the Chanong in the hills and mountains of Fujian province. These merchants knew all you had to do was sail an American vessel from any East Coast port, pick the tea up in Canton yourself, and bring it back. That's one way to efficiently reduce the links in the supply chain. I discussed in CHP episode 127 about the 1783 sailing of the Empress of China. All the way up to the American Revolution, if you wanted to drink tea, illegally anyway, you had to buy it from the EIC. Today's tea merchants on the web buy their tea directly from the individual growers of small-scale tea gardens out in the middle of the most remote mountains of China and India. That's about as efficient a supply chain as you can get. Only living next door to a tea garden could beat that. There was a lot of talk and commotion in Boston and the other three ports about what to do about this. They all knew the cargo was on its way and due to arrive in late November, early December. And the consensus was drawn whereby they decided to refuse the cargo of tea. And those agents who were cooperating with the EIC were all asked, in as forceful a way as possible, to resign and walk away from this. The EIC would have no alternative than to tuihua. <laughs> The word every exporter hates to hear. They'd have to take it back, baby. That's what happened in New York, Charleston, and Philly. The vessel sailed into port, and the future Americans all got to say a collective, Get out of here. Then seeing how foul and ugly the mood was, the ship sailed back to England 
loaded with bohee tea. But the guy in charge down in Boston, representing British interests there, wasn't so willing to bend to the colonists. And this led to a showdown. This governor, Thomas Hutchinson, was not going to back down and was determined to show a little backbone in the face of the challenge to British and parliamentary authority. As the standoff continued, the first ship, the Dartmouth, was joined by two other vessels, the Eleanor and the Beaver. The word had gone down the line in Boston to resist any attempts to unload the tea from the ships or pay any import duties. So on December 16, 1773, that famous night in American revolutionary history went down in Boston Harbor. A bunch of men dressed up as Mohawk Indians, the local tribe in the area, boarded all three vessels and dumped all the tea into Boston Harbor. And any flights flying in and out of Logan that night would have gotten a bird's eye view of the whole thing. 342 chests of Bohee tea, all the way from Fujian province. And with that hostile act, the colonists made a rather extreme protest about who should respect who as it related to self-government and the sacred idea of levying taxes on the people without their consent. And later on, after this tempest, other similar acts of protest were carried out elsewhere, directed at tea. There was the, the Greenwich Tea Party of December 22nd, 1773. The next year, there was the Charleston Tea Party of November 3rd, 1774. The Philadelphia Tea Party of December 1773 ended with the ship's captain taking the tea back to England. In the New York Tea Party, it ended the same as in Philadelphia. And there were others. Tea had become the symbol of the unpleasant hold that the British had on the colonists. And so, if I may quote the brilliant James Norwood Pratt from his new tea lover's treasury, quote, En route to sign the Declaration of Independence, John Adams wrote his wife Abigail how he asked at a tavern, Is it lawful for a wary traveler to refresh himself with a dish of tea, provided it has been honestly smuggled and has paid no duty? The landlord's daughter answered sternly, No, sir, we have renounced tea under this roof. But if you desire it, I will make you some coffee. End quote. I know it's not as simple as that, but if Howard Schultz was around back then, he definitely could have gotten a nice chunk of the coffee market right quick. From this whole brouhaha over tea in the colonies came a series of events that ultimately led to the shot heard round the world at the North Bridge to open the battles of Lexington and Concord, April 19th, 1775. The sacred tea parties practiced by all the grand ladies of the colony were halted in fits of patriotic protest. This was sort of like the whole freedom fries thing. Remember that? In 2003, Congressman Bob Ney, damn French, didn't line up behind us when we wanted to invade Iraq. We taught them. Not drinking tea anymore was considered a great symbolic patriotic act that told the colonial oppressors to stuff it. Euchre said about the immediate cause of the American Revolution that it was the British government's, quote, attempts to perpetuate a tea monopoly distasteful alike to British and American merchants. Thus, England lost an empire to oblige the East India Company, end quote. Okay, rather than get started with tea in the American colonies and the demise of the East India Company, let's 
abruptly and without fanfare. Just end things right here and pick up next time in part 14. Until then, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, imploring you, as I'm wont to do from time to time, to consider joining me next time for another tasteful episode of the Tea History Podcast. <laughs>